Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Cultural Podcast. A podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. I hope you all had a safe and happy holiday. By the time you listen to this, we'll probably be in the new year, so happy new year as well. I think we're all looking forward to leaving 2020 behind us. I ended the year with a bit of a cold, so forgive me if my voice sounds a bit funny. On today's episode, we'll start with a review of Napoli's draw to Torino. You probably don't want to relive that match, but it is a great way to get back into the rhythm of things with Serie A starting up again this weekend. In part 2, I'll give you my thoughts on Gennaro Gattuso, which is really a reaction to some of the takes I saw on Twitter after the Torino match. And in part 3, we'll check in on how our main competitors did on match day 14. So let's start with Napoli's final match of 2020, which was against Torino. Here's how it went. We saw Bongiorno connect with a Verdi corner in the first half. They go short to Rodriguez, back to Verdi, who delivers. It's teasing and it comes all the way through to Itzo, who volleys it into the ground and gives Torino the lead. Armando Itzo, born and raised in Naples. He has fired one in against Napoli. That final ball has been wasteful beyond belief. Fabio Ruiz, it's knocked down. Lorenzo Insigne! They needed a hero! Who else but the returning captain? Napoli a level. There's still four minutes to play. Is this the start of a remarkable late comeback from Lorenzo the Magnificent? It looked as though it wasn't going to come for Napoli. But absolute textbook insigne. Torino hearts are broken. We're level. And there is still time to go. Last chance saloon. The ball from Lorenzo Insigne. Was not where it needed to be. And that is the end of a game. Napoli take a point that for so long... As you heard, this game finished in a 1-1 draw with Armando Izzo scoring for Torino and Lorenzo Insigne scoring the late equalizer. This was our first draw of the season, though it definitely felt like a loss. I thought this was our worst performance of the season. I thought this was Gattuso's worst performance since he took over as coach about a year ago. We've now picked up only one point in our last three matches. We've also lost a lot of key players due to injury, so the winter mini break could not have come at a better time. In this review, we'll quickly revisit our three keys to the match. We'll also talk about everything that went wrong in this match. But first, let's go over the starting lineups. 
Torino had a number of changes compared to our predicted 11. As expected, Marco Giampaolo went back to the 3-5-2. Salvatore Sirigu returned to the goal over Vanya Milinkovic-Savic, who started the previous two. Alessandro Bongiorno started over Nicolas Nkulu in the middle of the three center backs. Bremer started on the left, and with Ricardo Rodriguez moving up to the left wing, Armando Izzo started at center right. Wilfried Singo started at right wing back. Thomas Rincon started in the middle of the midfield three with Karolinetti to his left and Sasha Lukic to his right. We had Suelio Mieta starting, and as expected, Andrea Bellotti and Simone Verdi started up top. Gattuso had one change compared to our predicted 11. Napoli lined up in the 4-2-3-1 with Alex Meret in goal. Nikola Maksimovic and Kostas Manolas started at centre-back. Elcid Kusai made his return to start at left-back over Fauzi Gulam, and Giovanni Di Lorenzo started at right-back again. Diego Demme and Timo Bakayoko started in the double pivot. Piotr Zielinski played in the 10 spot. Lorenzo Insigne started on the left wing and Matteo Politano started on the right wing. And finally, Andrea Petania played at striker. Alright, so let's get to our three keys to the match. I'm going to do these relatively quickly because I think we'll cover most of it in the discussion afterwards. The first key to the match was that we had to play to our level, not to our opponents. This was a definite fail. I don't know what game we were playing, but it certainly wasn't ours. These last few matches, in fact, since Osman got hurt, we've really lacked an identity. In this match, we didn't seem to have a strategy. The definition of insane is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. So this performance was completely insane. The second key to the match was that we needed to stop Andrea Bellotti. I think it's safe to say we did succeed at that. Bellotti didn't have a bad game and considering how defensively Torino played, he still managed to get a few chances. He had a long distance effort in the first half that bent wide of the goal. He won the corner kick that led to the goal, which we'll get to in a bit. And he had a late chance that Medet stopped, but we kept him off the score sheet, so I consider that a success. Finally, the third key to the match is that we needed to move the ball quickly. Again, this was a big fail. This is precisely why we struggle to break down Torino's defense, but I'll come back to this one. So what went wrong? The short answer is everything, but let's break it down a little bit. First and foremost, and getting back to that third key to the match, I think our passing in this match was absolutely shameful. I don't think I need to convince anyone of this point, but let me run through some of the numbers anyways. And these numbers were just from me counting during the match, so I'm sure they're not perfect, but they should suffice for this discussion. By my count, we played about 25 crosses into the area, and only about 11 of them were actually decent deliveries. So less than 50% of our crosses even gave us a chance to score. Time and time again, Insigne played crosses that did not reach the first man. We saw Di Lorenzo, Bakayoko, Lozano, and Fabian play balls too deep. We saw Lozano cross the ball on the ground when it should have been in the air. And when we did play a decent ball into the area, we were completely dominated by Torino's back line. And it wasn't just the final ball that was poor. We couldn't pass the ball in the midfield either. We looked incredibly disjointed. I get that we have injuries, and I do think that has affected our goal-scoring production. But in the middle and at the back, we still had quite a few regulars on the field, so we should have been able to string together a few passes. By my count, we had 12 plays in this match where we turned the ball over because our players were just not on the same page. We saw Kusai pass to no one, we saw Demme play a ball behind Politano because he thought Politano would come back and he continued his run, Demme actually made a number of errant passes for the short time that he was on the pitch, we saw Zielinski let the ball run onto Petania thinking he was coming back to the ball and Petania continued his run, and we saw Zielinski play a ball in the middle of the field thinking Lozano would cut in, but instead he made the run out wide. We were far too predictable with our passes. I counted six passes on the ground that were easily intercepted. I counted six passes on the ground that were easily intercepted, and that's just on the ground. I'm not even including long balls and crosses. We really only had two possessions where we passed the ball well. There was a nice interplay near the end of the first half between Insigne, Bakayoko, and Petania that nearly came off, but Torino had eight players in a very tight area, and Petania wasn't able to squeeze the final ball through. And then there was the goal, which was really only two passes, but Fabian made the right read, and the layoff by Zielinski was perfect, and then of course, there was the finish by Insigne. The shot had to be perfect to bend around a fully stretched Sirigu. Part of the reason our passing was so poor was because of the lack of creativity in the midfield, which has been an issue all season really. I was concerned about this from the moment I saw the starting lineup. I like Timo Ibakayoko, I like Diego Demme, but I do not like them together. I think that pairing is far too defensive. 
I think of Diego Demme as a poor man's Alan. He's capable of playing further up the field, but his strength is really on the defensive side. I'm fine with using Bakayoko and Demme together against some of the stronger opponents when we need to defend more, but not against Torino. We knew they were going to defend and counter, so we only needed one holding midfielder on the field. Then, when Diego Demme got hurt, we replaced him with Elif Elmas, which I think was a mistake by Gattuso, but I'll come back to that in a bit. With our struggles passing the ball, we saw our players trying to force their way through, which also did not work. You never want to see Bakayoko trying to take on defenders. In the second half, Insigne tried to go it alone and was stopped, and that play actually started the counterattack, which led to the corner kick, which led to the goal. Finally, our finishing was really poor, which again has been an issue all season long, especially with the injuries lately. Insigne and Zelinski had our best chances. Insigne had a chance in the first half where we actually used Petania correctly. Petania chested the ball down to Insigne, but his shot was always rising. Insigne also had two free kicks, one that he smashed into the wall and the other that he hit well from far out, but caught too much of the goal and Sidigu stopped it relatively easily. But we can't hold any of that against him because he scored a clutch goal when we needed him to. Zielinski had four chances from open play. On two of them, he missed the target with his right foot in the first half and with his left foot in the second half. The other two shots were on target, but both were straight at Sidigu. He had a right-footed shot in the first half and an open header in the second half. Now, it's hard to be critical of Zielinski because he was one of the few players that was actually creating anything in this match. He was breaking the lines, he was playing vertically, he was linking up play, but this was exactly the type of game where we needed someone like him to make a play, and at least right now, he is not that guy. We keep hearing about Papu Gomez and Rodrigo De Paul, and one thing those guys do that Zielinski hasn't been doing is they seem to score goals when their teams need them to the most. I'm not saying Zielinski won't develop that. I actually think we will see his goal count start to rise compared to previous years. He's clearly playing with more confidence. He's not making players all over the place. But we're going to need to see him and Fabian start to score more goals. And what was even more concerning than the poor finishing was the complete lack of urgency. We should have shown more urgency when the score was nil-nil, but we didn't. We definitely should have shown more urgency when we went down a goal, but we didn't. Really, we didn't show any urgency until Insigne scored the equalizer in the second minute of stoppage time. It was as if that was the point where we realized that we could actually win this match. I know we talk about it a lot, but that right there is a mentality issue. And if Gattuso can't motivate these guys, then I honestly don't think anyone can. In part 2, I'm going to talk more about Gattuso and whether he's the right man for the job, but I do want to talk about his performance in this game specifically. I think this was his worst match since he joined Napoli, and I have no doubt that was at least partially because of his eye condition. Gattuso himself admitted that he has not been himself lately, and that he thinks that this has affected the players. Now, I generally shy away from criticizing managers, because who am I to pretend that I can manage a team better than the actual manager who earned that title, especially a manager as decorated as Gennaro Gattuso is? But I do think he made a few mistakes in this match. The qualification I do always make when I critique managers is that it's easy to say what they should have done in retrospect. If Napoli won this game 3-0, I wouldn't have been sitting here criticizing Gattuso. I'd either be praising him or I'd be praising his players. But the first mistake I think he made was the one I mentioned a moment ago, which was starting Bakayoko and Demme together. I get why he did it because Demme was rested, but I think Fabian should have been in the starting 11 for the creativity he provides. I would have liked to see Fabian start with Demme and Bakayoko start on the bench. I know a lot of people don't like Fabian and I myself have been disappointed with his play this season, but I think that's mostly because the system doesn't suit him. I actually think he'd be far more successful as the number 10. He'd have less of a defensive responsibility there and we know he can shoot from the top of the box. I also think that in his current role Fabian has to come way too deep which then limits his ability to contribute in attack because he doesn't have the pace to go forward quickly enough. I have a feeling the reason Gattuso started Bakayoko here was because Koulibaly was out, so he needed Bakayoko to support Manolas and Maksimovic defensively, and he wasn't wrong in thinking that. Maksimovic especially looked vulnerable in this match, and Balotti is a very tough cover. The second mistake I think Gattuso made was bringing in Elif Elmas for Deme when Deme got hurt. Again, if Gattuso wanted to add more creativity, he could have brought in Fabian. Now, perhaps Fabian wasn't fit to play so long, but I find that hard to believe. We've seen Fabian play 5-6 consecutive games on short rest. If Gattuso wanted to stay conservative, then he could have brought in Stanislav Lobotka. Elmas looked completely lost out there. 
I know we've used Almas as a sub for either Zelensky or Fabian, so in theory this should have worked, but I think he's definitely better suited to a winger role. With the changes that Gattuso made in the second half, Elmas ended up playing as the Regista, which clearly wasn't a comfortable position for him. Also, by using Elmas in that role, Gattuso left himself no choice but to bring in an injured Chucky Lozano to replace a tired Politano. That was the third mistake. I don't think we should have taken that chance with Lozano and potentially made his injury worse. That would have been the better place for Elmas to come on. So those were the mistakes I think Gattuso made as far as personnel go. I also think he made some tactical mistakes. I mentioned earlier that we seemed to have no identity, no game plan. We just kept trying to do the same thing over and over again and it wasn't working. When your opponent drops as deep as Torino did, you need to move quickly both on and off the ball, which was our third key to the match. You need to get between the lines, you need to make quick touches, and you need to find ways to stretch out that back line. We saw some of that in the first half, particularly when Insigne would cut into the middle of the field and then Di Lorenzo would make the late run on the wing. That spreads out the defense and all of a sudden there are passing lanes, we just didn't do enough of that. Instead, we played cross after cross, which we already talked about. Does that mean I think Gattuso should be fired? Absolutely not. I'll talk more about that in part 2. The last thing I want to talk about in this review is Torino's play. I know they're a bad team, but you have to give them some credit. Like many of our opponents lately, they came with a plan and they executed it well. Early on, Torino seemed keen to play long balls towards single on the right wing. Napoli did a pretty good job of defending that. Giampaolo must have seen something on the film that made him think he had an advantage there. Singo did win a lot of those balls, but he often directed his header toward a Napoli player. Simone Verdi did get a decent chance in the first half off of one of those plays. On the defensive end, Torino crowded their half of the field and were quite content to let us pass the ball around the back. They didn't press, they just sat back and waited for us to come to them and then closed us down in numbers. They played us physically, which is something I wish I could see more of from our guys. I'm shocked that a team coached by Gattuso plays as soft as we do, but I think a lot of that has to do with the schedule. It takes a lot of energy to play the way Gattuso used to play, and I think the schedule is just too demanding to do that right now. I mentioned Torino's dominance in the air when we did manage to play in a decent ball. Torino's back three of Buongiorno, Bremer, and Itzel were really impressive at the back. I thought Buongiorno played especially well in this match. That back line completely shut down Petania. They were eating up everything that came their way. And then of course it was the Napolitano Armando Itzel that scored the goal. Giovanni Di Lorenzo made a really poor attempt to head the ball out. Instead he headed it straight to Itzel. And Itzel did well to smash the ball into the ground and up into the top corner. Itzo did get some flack for celebrating a goal he scored against his hometown, which he responded to the following day. He said, I wanted to clarify some things about last night's goal. I'm Napolitan, I love my city, but I'm a professional and I defend my club and my job. The exaltation was a moment of joy for all the sacrifices, the hard moments of these matches of mine, of my club, and of my teammates. It is not my intention to disrespect my origins that I adore. So Torino deserves some credit here. They probably saved Marco Giampaolo's job with the result. Meanwhile, a lot of Napoli fans suddenly think that Gattuso should lose his job. I'm not one of them, and I'll explain why in part two. Okay, so part 2 is really a continuation of part 1. After the draw to Torino, I was amazed to see how many Napoli fans on social media were calling for Gattuso to get the axe. The common criticism I saw was that Gattuso had achieved all he could at Napoli and that we don't have any tactics anymore. Specifically, a lot of people were critical of Gattuso for continuing to use the 4-2-3-1 instead of going back to the 4-3-3. Now everyone's entitled to their opinion, if you think Gattuso should be fired then there's probably nothing I can say to change your mind, but if you follow me on Twitter, you know I'm pretty adamant that he should not be fired. 
But I want to take a few minutes here to explain why I feel that way because it's hard to do on Twitter with only 280 characters. First of all, we are currently 9 points back of Milan with a game in hand. Of course that game in hand is against Juventus which is the match that was rescheduled after we won our appeal at Kony. With 2 losses and a draw in our last 3 matches, that game against Juventus suddenly carries significant weight. We could only be 6 points back in Milan, though we don't know yet when that match will be played. With how competitive Serie A is this season, a 6 point deficit with 25 matches to play is by no means insurmountable. I personally don't think Milan will maintain this unbeaten streak for the entire season. If they do, then they deserve to win the Scudetto and even if we were playing better we probably wouldn't catch them. I'm sure Milanisti are sick of hearing people say this, but I'm more concerned about Inter, who now have a distinct advantage not playing in the Champions League or the Europa League. We're also only 1 point back of Sassuolo for 4th, and only 2 points back of Roma for 3rd. Now, I know a lot of Napoli fans get annoyed when I say this, but the number 1 goal is to qualify for the Champions League. I don't think that is something we just say to the media, and saying our number one goal is to get back into the Champions League does not mean we're not interested in winning the Scudetto. Of course we are. We want to win every game, and if we do that, we'll achieve both of these goals. But at the very least, we must qualify for the Champions League. Failing to do that is far more detrimental than failing to win the Scudetto. Simply put, without playing in the Champions League, we do not have the resources to continue to compete. Last season was such a mess that we dropped out of the competition and financially it's imperative that we get back in. I've said this before and I'll say it again, each year you miss the Champions League, the more difficult it becomes to get back into the Champions League. Look at Milan, they finished in 6th place in Serie A in 2013-14 and never returned to the Champions League. It looks like this season they might finally get back in. The reason it's so difficult to get back in is because the revenue available in the Europa League is a fraction of the revenue available in the Champions League. That means you can't bring in as many world class players, at least not without violating financial fair play regulations, which is also something we saw at Milan. And it's not just about the money, it's also about the talent that you attract when you're in the Champions League. Take Rodrigo DePaul for example, everybody wants him on their team right now, DePaul is on the record saying that he's preparing himself to one day play in the Champions League. If he has an offer from us and from another team and that other team plays in the Champions League and we do not, then guess what? He's not coming to Napoli, even if we're offering a higher salary. So if you can't afford to buy top players or if you can't attract top talent, it's really difficult to compete for a Champions League spot, let alone to compete for the Scudetto. But again, I'm not saying we shouldn't hope to win the Scudetto. I hope to God, I hope to Allah, I hope to Yahweh and Vishnu and every other God out there that we do but I've never expected to win it. Let me say that again. I always hope to win the Scudetto, but I've never expected to win it. The harsh reality is that we haven't won a Scudetto in 30 years. We've come close, but we haven't won. I think that's a big reason why some people are so disappointed right now, because they convinced themselves that this was going to be the year that we win it. Now, I don't blame people for perhaps being a little overzealous, If there was ever a season to compete, this is the one. Serie A probably hasn't been this competitive since the 90s. With games twice a week, teams like Juventus are more susceptible to draw points and we have one of the deeper squads. But that very competition is why it will be so difficult to win the Scudetto this year. Yes, Juventus have looked vulnerable this season, but Inter looked just as good this season as they did last season. Like I said, they also don't have European competitions to worry about, which isn't good for Inter financially, but definitely improves their chances of winning Serie A. Then you have Milan. No one expected this start from them. No one expected Milan to be top of the table with a healthy squad, let alone with all the injuries that they've had. Even Roma have been a lot better than most of us expected given their financial situation and new ownership. And as we've seen, Lazio, Atalanta, Sassuolo, and even Verona can take points away from any top club. Our next 4 games are against Cagliari, Spezia, Udinese and Fiorentina. That's a relatively easy schedule compared to the other top clubs. Milan play Juventus and Atalanta in their next 5. Inter play Roma and Juve in their next 4. Roma have Inter and Lazio in their next 4. And Sassuolo have Atalanta, Juventus and Lazio in their next 5. So by February we could be looking at a very different table. If we're in the same position at the end of January that we're in now then I will entertain the idea of firing Gattuso. The other point I want to address is Gattuso's supposed lack of strategy or tactics. I'll grant that in these last few matches we seem to lack an identity, 
But as I talked about in part one, I think a lot of that has to do with the schedule and with players we've been missing, specifically Victor Osman and Dries Mertens. They form a huge part of the identity of this club. We also played the Lazio match without Lorenzo Insigne, and we played the Torino match without Kaladu Koulibaly and without a fully fit Chucky Lozano, not to mention Diego Dema, who was forced to leave that match. Now, I know that a lot of people are going to say that we have the depth to beat a team like Torino, and you're right, we do have enough depth and we should have won that game. But when you play 19 matches in 95 days and have two international breaks where most of your players are traveling abroad to represent their countries, whether in the Nations League, the African Cup of Nations, or World Cup qualifying, these performances are bound to happen every now and then. I know Milan have also had their share of injuries and have yet to slip up, but they're really the exception to the rule. And actually, they have slipped up. They've tied both Genoa and Parma, who are bottom-of-the-table teams, but they've certainly faltered less than anyone else has. Depth does not mean that you have another starting 11 sitting on the bench with the same quality as your regular starting 11. It means that you have quality players that you can bring in off the bench or who you can start if you lose a player here or there. You need to have a ton of depth to replace three starting forwards. For anyone who's criticizing Andrea Petania, you need to understand that Petania is our third option at striker. His true value is in providing a different look, a different challenge to defenders when he comes off the bench. You also have to appreciate that he's still adjusting to playing for a new club and to being a substitute after spending the last few seasons playing as a starter. Also, we have not been taking advantage of Petania's strengths. We should be playing crosses to his head, not to his feet. We should be playing the ball to his feet in the middle of the pitch where he can hold up play for his wingers to play off of him. That one is on Gattuso, but it's also on our players as well. In our last episode, we talked about the comments our assistant manager Luigi Riccio made after the game, suggesting that players did nothing of what Gattuso asked them to do. The reason why Riccio gave that interview was because Gattuso's eye condition continues to flare up. That too needs to be taken into consideration. As we said in part 1, after the Torino match, Gattuso spoke about how this condition has affected him. He said he has not been himself, and as a result, the players have suffered. And even if we did fire Gattuso, who would we replace him with? Before Pochettino signed with PSG, people were calling for him to come to Napoli. Our highest paid player makes 6.5 million euros per year. Where in the world would we get 20 million euros a year to pay Poch? No upper echelon manager wants to take over a club mid-season. That's how we ended up with Gattuso in the first place. He took over for the upper echelon manager that we did have, who failed miserably. The reason he failed was because he tried to play a 4-4-2 with a team that was built for a 4-3-3, and then he completely lost control. If we replaced Gattuso now, we'd end up with another coach of the same caliber, so we might as well keep Gattuso until the end of the season, and then reassess then. We also spent the last two transfer windows building a squad that suits Gattuso's system, so unless we brought in another manager who plays a 4-3-3 or something similar, we'd be looking at some pretty significant roster changes. And if that manager doesn't succeed, are we going to fire him too? We simply cannot. To summarize, we're 9 points back of first, we're only 1 point back of the Champions League, we have 25 games still to play when most other teams have 24, We've been missing players due to COVID and to injury, and not just any players. We started the Torino match without four regular starters, and three of them are forwards. We've had a coach trying to manage with an eye condition that causes double vision. Finally, if we did fire him, we'd have to replace him with a similar coach, and there's no guarantees that Gattuso's replacement would do any better. So we should not fire Gattuso, at least not until the end of the season. So that will do for part two. In part three, we'll recap how our main competitors did on match day 14. Siamo nati e cresciuti a Napoli. Per noi non è solo una squadra di calcio, è una città. Napoli è identità. Napoli corre, lotta, si ribella. Napoli è bella. Qui non sei mai solo. Qui puoi tutto. Qui puoi spiccare il volo. E allora, tutti insieme, cantiamo in coro!
Next, let's check in on the top of the table. It feels like a while ago, but on the day the round started, we won our appeal at Kony and got our single point back. So that put us in third place, tied with Juventus and Roma on 24 points. Milan were in first place with 31 points and Inter were in second with 30 points. Sassuolo were one point back of us, Atalanta and Lazio were three points back of us, and Verona were four points back of us. I want to start with Inter, who played the early game on Wednesday. They won 2-1 on goals from Lautaro Martinez and Milan Skriniar. Verona's lone goal was scored by Ivan Illich. This was another typical Inter match. The first half was rather uneventful, neither side really had any legitimate scoring opportunities, and then there was a lot more action in the second half. For the second consecutive match, Romelu Lukaku, Ashraf Hakimi, and Lautaro combined to score in the 52nd minute, the exact same minute, to give Inter a 1-0 lead. That lead lasted only about 10 minutes after a costly mistake from Samir Handanovic. He mishandled Davide Faraoni's cross, which fell for a substitute Ilic only a few feet away from the goal. The 36-year-old is likely in his final season as the number one with Inter. His form has declined dramatically in the last few seasons. Really, his only good match so far was, of course, the one against Napoli, where we were unable to score in the 1-0 loss. Credit to Faraoni on the play, he was clearly fouled by Ashley Young on the wing. Most players would have went to ground there to get the free kick, but he kept on playing and he was rewarded for it. Inter responded well, though only 6 minutes after Verona equalized, Milan Skriniar put Inter back ahead with a header to the far post. That was Skriniar's first goal in 3 years. Skriniar was the player who got beat by Ilic on the Verona goal, which wasn't really his fault, but he nevertheless made amends. Inter went on to win 2-1, but had this match finished 1-1, there could have been some controversy. In the 74th minute, Lukaku clearly had his shirt pulled in the box, but the penalty wasn't given. Lukaku seemed to throw himself to ground to try to win the call, but frankly, if your shirt is tugged, it doesn't matter if you go to ground. Lukaku had a few chances to extend his goal-scoring streak in the final few minutes of the match, but he was unable to score. Lukaku thought he scored in the final seconds of the match, but the referee blew his whistle. Initially, it seemed like the referee blew his whistle just before the ball crossed the line, which would have been really harsh, but on the replay, it appeared that Lukaku committed a foul just before scoring, and that is why the whistle blew. In the end, it didn't matter. Inter got a deserving win to remain unbeaten at the San Siro this season. That was also Inter's 7th consecutive league win, and with the win, Inter temporarily moved to the top of the table with Milan to play later in the day. Milan beat Lazio 3-2 on goals from Antti Rebic, Hakan Chalanoglu, and Teo Hernandez. Chiro Immobile and Luis Alberto scored for Lazio. This was a wild game, it was an entertaining game, and it was a game that had a little bit of everything. It had goals, it had penalty kicks, it had controversy, and it had late drama. Milan got off to another dream start in this match. It wasn't as quick as their last match where Rafael Leao scored in under 7 seconds, but it was quick enough. Antti Rebic headed home his first of the season. Adam Matusic got caught watching the player instead of the ball in the corner kick, which is why he was beat so easily in the air. Only about 5 minutes later, Milan were awarded a controversial penalty. Patrick appeared to block Rebic's shot in the box with his face, but the penalty was called for a handball, or at least that's what we initially thought. VAR reviewed the play and there was no camera angle that made it clear and obvious that the ball hit Patrick's face and not his hand. However, on second look, it looked like Patrick fouled Rebic with his slide, so in the end, the penalty was probably the correct decision. With Ibrahimovic and Kessie both out, Hakan Chalonoglu took the penalty and he did extremely well. Reyna guessed wrong, but I don't think he would have stopped this shot even if he guessed correctly. So in the first 15 minutes of the match, Milan were already up 2-0. Credit to Lazio though, they didn't put their heads down like we've come to expect from Napoli. This Lazio team has a ton of character. Moments after Joaquin Correa forced a nice save from Giro Donnarumma, in fact on the ensuing corner kick, Correa went down in the box. The penalty wasn't given initially, but Correa stayed down, and when Lazio kicked the ball out of play, VAR called the referee Marco Di Bello to take a look. Di Bello then awarded the penalty to Lazio, which was a very soft penalty call. Yes, Pierre Kalulu got a slight touch on the outside of Correa's boot, but it didn't affect the play whatsoever. We complain about players going down too easily these days, but with calls like these, we're only encouraging players to go to ground. Chido Immobile stepped up to take the penalty. I thought the commentator had a great line about Immobile. He said, he and Donnarumma, born 8 kilometers apart, separated now by 12 yards. Of course, they're both from Napoli. Immobile's penalty was well taken, but Donnarumma made an incredible save getting low and pushing the shot off the upright. 
However, as if in awe of their keeper's save, Milan did not react quickly to the save. The ball popped up and Luis Alberto got there first to head past Donnarumma for his second in as many matches. For the rest of the first half and a decent portion of the second half, Lazio were the better side. You could see that Milan were really missing Ismail Benacer who was out injured and especially Frank Kessie who was suspended for this match for yellow card accumulation. Lazio were rewarded with their positive play in the 59th minute. Chiro Immobile completed a wonderful move. In fact, I should say that Lazio earned the equalizer rather than that they were rewarded because this goal was definitely well-deserved. Sergei Milinkovic-Savic played a delicate looping ball over the top to Immobile, who side-footed his volley with his left foot into the side netting. Lazio continued to create chances, but all of that stopped when Simone Inzaghi replaced Milinkovic-Savic with John Daniel Akpa Akpro and Chiro Immobile with Andreas Pereira. They looked tired, but Lazio were on the front foot and Inzaghi removed their most lethal goal-scoring threat and one of Lazio's two key midfielders. With the way the game was going, it seemed to me that Inzaghi was playing for the draw with those changes. That may have been the psychological boost that Milan needed because they went back on the front foot from that point forward. Lazio held them off until the very last minute of the match when who else Teo Hernandez scored yet another big goal heading in the corner kick. So Milan head into 2021 top of the table. They're not quite winter champions. Normally that coincides with the end of the calendar year. But because this season started late, that unofficial title won't be awarded until January 24th, which is the midway point of the schedule. But unless you're an Interista, how can you not be happy for Milan, Stefano Pioli and that fan base? I'll be first to admit that I didn't think Pioli would last and he's proven me and many other doubters wrong. I still don't think Milan will win the Scudetto though. They were a minute away from a third consecutive draw. I think the discussion would have been very different had they not scored that late winner, but they did and Milan are still top of the table. Moving on, Fiorentina upset Juventus 3-0 with goals from Dusan Valovic and Alexandro Ungol and Martin Cassides. This was Federico Chiesa's first match against his former club and you could see he had a little extra pep in his step. At times it seemed to me that he was the only Juve player that actually wanted to win this match. Maybe Cristiano Ronaldo was the other one. Adrian Rabiot was forced to sit this one out. He picked up a red card in Juve's round 2 match against Roma. He served his suspension in the game against Napoli that was never played. But since that match was rescheduled, Rabiot served his suspension in this one. Though I've heard that that one doesn't count so he may actually have to sit out another match. Fiorentina couldn't have gotten off to a better start. Only three minutes into the match, Valovic opened the scoring after getting behind Juve's back line of Leonardo Bonucci and Matthias De Ligt. Frank Ribéry played the through ball and just when it looked like Valovic took one too many touches, he chipped over Wojtek Szczesny. That's his third in as many matches, though the other two were from the penalty spot. Things went from bad to worse for Juventus in the 16th minute. Juan Cuadrado went into a tackle on Gaetano Castrovilli with his studs up. Initially, he was shown a yellow, but after a VAR review, the yellow was correctly upgraded to a red. This was a really reckless challenge. Pirlo had to adjust his tactics to play a man down, so he replaced Aaron Ramsey with Danilo. The Welshman was clearly displeased with that decision. He was seen kicking a water bottle on the sidelines, but realistically, he was the obvious choice with Juventus needing to score. This entire match was pretty feisty. I was convinced that someone on Fiorentina would pick up a second yellow, whether it was Cristiano Biraghi, Borja Valero, or someone else, but no one did. Borja Valero probably should have been shown a second yellow in the 50th minute, moments after picking up his first. Now, I know Juventus were down a man, but it seemed to me that rather than playing to score, they were playing more for a penalty or for a red card. Ronaldo and Chiesa in particular were flopping all over the place. Ronaldo did have a goal from open play, but he was called offside. On that play, Fiorentina's line did really well to push up just before the cross was played to catch Ronaldo in an offside position. Ronaldo also made a claim for a penalty in the second half, but La Pena didn't give it. I was fine with that decision. VAR looked at it as well. The problem, as always, is consistency. We've seen similar calls made in other matches, which is what makes this so frustrating for everyone. Fiorentina did a great job of taking advantage of the extra man. In the spell leading up to the second goal, they were passing the ball around quite confidently while Juve struggled to regain possession. Bonucci whiffed on a clearance before the ball bounced off Sandro and into the goal. Moments after that, Federico Bernardeschi made a claim for a penalty and it too was not given. And not only that, La Pena did not take a look at it. I assume that means that VAR radioed to him that there was nothing there. That was enough for Pavel Nebet to walk away from the stands in a moment that will live forever in GIF form. 
Bonucci had a rough day. He was largely at fault for the third goal as well. He tried to make a run through the middle of the pitch and had his pocket picked by Frank Ribery. A few moments later, ex-Juventus player Martin Cassidis tapped into the empty goal to put this match away. Fabio Paratici had seen enough at that point. He walked away after the goal as well. That was the final goal of the match. Curiously, Andrea Pirlo waited until the 73rd minute to replace Weston McKennie with Dejan Kulusevski, and he didn't use Paolo Dybala at all. So Cesare Prandelli got his first win in charge at Fiorentina after picking up only three points in his first six matches. Nikki Bandini had some great nuggets in her piece about the match for the Guardian. This was Fiorentina's first away win against Juventus since 2008, when Prandelli was last in charge of Fiorentina. This was also Prandelli's first win in Serie A since he was at Genoa. His last win also happened to be against Juventus. For Juve, it was the first time they've conceded three goals in a home game since the Allianz opened in 2011. With the decision by Kony earlier in the day, a lot of people were happy to point out that Juve lost six points in a single day. That's not really the case. Yes, they had the three points for the win against Napoli taken away, but that match still has to be played. Roma beat Cagliari 3-2 on goals from Jordan Vertu, Edin Dzeko, and Gianluca Mancini. Cagliari got a brace from Jao Pedro. Once again, Roma struck on the counterattack. Along with Milan, I think Roma have the most dangerous counterattack in the league, which is a little surprising when you think of the age of their front three. This goal started with Henrik Mkhitaryan playing a gorgeous switch to Rick Karsdorp on the right wing. Karsdorp's cross took a fortunate bounce and fell for Vertu, who drove his shot into the ground and into the top corner. That play worked really well for Roma in this match. In the second half, Roger Ibanez played another gorgeous switch again to Karsdorp on the right wing. Karsdorp took the ball down really well before scoring to Edin Dzeko in front of the goal. That was Dzeko's sixth of the season. With that goal, he moved past Vincenzo Montella and tied Amadeo Amadei for third with 84 goals. Next up is Roberto Pruzzo, who scored 106. We'll see if Dzeko can catch him. I think he'll need another season with Roma to do that. After that is Francesco Totti. His 250-goal record may never be caught. Roma's third goal came from a corner kick set piece. Lorenzo Pellegrini played a deep cross to Chris Smalling, who had just come off the bench. Smalling headed the ball back into the area, and Mancini only had to lean forward to head in. Other than a 10-minute stretch early in the second half, Roma were the better side, but that stretch nearly cost them points. Bologna had three great scoring chances in the span of three minutes. First, Jao Pedro pulled the ball back for Giovanni Simeone, but his low shot just missed the far post. Simeone had another chance a minute later after Mancini turned the ball over in the middle of the field. Finally, Bologna broke through a minute after that. Once again, Roma turned the ball over cheaply. Brian Cristante played a long ball straight back to Bologna. A few passes later, Jao Pedro fired into the back post. That was the equalizer at that point. Two minutes later, Simeone came close to putting Bologna ahead, but his header rocked the bar and stayed out. If that goes in, who knows how this match turns out. Alessio Cranio did a good job of keeping Bologna in this match. He made two very nice saves in the 29th minute. The first was on a Branquistante header, and the second was on a Marash Kumbula header on the ensuing corner kick. Then early in the second half, Pedro had a chance to put Roma up 2-0, again on the counterattack. He tried to chip over Cranio, but the keeper did well to hold his ground and simply caught the shot. João Pedro scored his second late in the match from the penalty spot. He now has 8 goals on the season. That made for a tense conclusion to the match, but Roma held on for the win. Moving on, Atalanta drew Bologna 2-2. Luis Muriel scored a brace for Atalanta. Takahiro Tomiyasu and Nahuan Paz scored for Bologna. For Atalanta, this performance was, in a way, the opposite of Atalanta's performance against Roma in the prior round. Against Roma, Atalanta were not very good in the first half, but dominated the second half. In this match, Atalanta were very good in the first half. I wouldn't say they dominated the first half, but they were very, very good, especially in the second part of the first half. Nothing really happened in the first quarter of the match. Both sides passed the ball well through the midfield, and both sides defended well in the final third. Atalanta broke the deadlock in the 23rd minute. Josip Ilicic made an excellent play to win the penalty. First, he played the dummy on Matteo Piscina's pass, and he continued his run to receive the pass from Rafael Toloi. Then he tried to force himself between Jordi Schutten and Gary Medel to win the penalty. I thought Bologna were a bit unfortunate with this decision. You could see on the replay that Ilicic was already on his way to ground when he tried to split the defenders. Musa Barrow may have gotten the slightest touch on Ilicic just before that, but I think Ilicic simply lost his balance more than anything. 
But we have VAR, and I'm sure they looked at it, so the VAR must have determined there was indeed a foul, or at least that there was no clear and obvious error. Luis Muriel, who started over Duvan Zapata, fired past Angelo da Costa into the bottom left corner to put Atalanta ahead. Muriel scored a second only two minutes later. This time, he split between two Bologna defenders, Medel and Danilo, before volleying into the bottom right corner. After the second goal, Atalanta seemed to have a quality chance every time they got forward, but they were not able to score a third. Either the final pass lacked quality, or the finish missed the target. That proved to be costly in this match. Atalanta looked like they were going to cruise to a 2-0 victory, but Bologna scored twice in the final quarter of the match to pull off a draw. Tomiyasu scored the first goal after a long-given goal with Ricardo Orsolini, who played the return pass with the outside of his right boot. Tomiyasu finished like a striker would, chipping over Golini at the near post. That was the first second-half goal Atalanta have conceded in the month of December. Udinese and Benevento were the only other clubs to not concede a second-half goal in December heading into the round, and Benevento scored one against Udinese in their 2-0 victory. The second goal came late in the match from a corner kick. Rodrigo Palacio flicked his header at the near post, and Paz headed in at the back post. This was really Atalanta's game to win, but they squandered so many opportunities in the first half. Last season, we saw Atalanta scoring 3, 4, even 5 goals on a regular basis, so it was okay to give up opportunities and to concede goals. In fairness, Atalanta didn't actually give up too many opportunities in this match. Bologna were just clinical when they needed to be. I think Giampiero Gasperini is partially to blame here. For some reason, Gasperini replaced Ilicic with Alexi Miranchuk at the half. I thought maybe Ilicic was hurt, but I haven't seen anything after the match indicating that he is in fact hurt. The way Ilicic was playing, I can't help but wonder if Atalanta might have scored that third goal early in the second half. Instead, they only scored the two, and this one finished in a draw. Finally, Sassuolo beat Sampdoria 3-1. Hamid Jr. Traore, Francesco Caputo, and Domenico Berardi scored for Sassuolo, and Fabio Cagliarella scored for Sampdoria. The common theme in this match was poor defending, which we saw in just about every goal. Sassuolo opened the scoring only a minute and 18 seconds into the match. I'm sure that felt good after Sassuolo conceded the record-breaking goal to Milan only 7 seconds into their prior match. Lorenzo Tonelli was the culprit on the first goal. He played a horrible ball straight to Jeremy Boga inside the Sampdoria half. Then Tonelli got beat right before Traore slotted his shot into the bottom corner. That was Traore's second goal in his last three matches. Sampdoria equalized 10 minutes into the second half. Vlad Kirikish was the main culprit on that goal. First, he played a wayward ball to the wing, but was fortunate that Berardi came back to retrieve it. Then Kirikesh played another wayward pass, this time into a far more dangerous area in the middle of the pitch, straight to Adrian Silva. Silva had only come on in the first half to replace an injured Morton Thorsby. He played the ball to Maya Yoshida, who quickly played Qualirella at the top of the box. The veteran striker did what he does best. He took one touch with his left boot to control the ball, turned and fired into the bottom corner with his right boot. To top it all off, it was Kirikesh who played Qualirella on side. But the Romanian quickly made up for it. Moments later, Sampdoria gave Kirikesh the entire midfield to run into and he took it. He then played Berardi through on the right wing. Audaro came off his line and made a nice save, but the ball ricocheted off of Omar Kali and fell for Chicho Caputo in front of the goal. He scored his first in 9 matches, though he did miss 5 of those matches due to injury. Then 2 minutes later, Boga and Troere did some excellent work on the left wing to break free. Boga's shot was stopped by Audero, but he pushed the ball back into the danger area. Tommaso Augello whiffed on the clearance, and Berardi pounced to put Sassuolo ahead 3-1. We're starting to see shades of the Jeremy Boga that we saw last season. He missed a lot of time at the start of this season because of COVID and hasn't regained the form that we saw last season. He's had moments of brilliance, like the goal that he scored against Verona earlier this year, but he's also made some poor plays, including in this match. Sassuolo had a chance late in the second half on the counterattack. Boga carried all the way upfield and had both Traore and Berardi open to his right, but instead he tried to go it alone and only managed to win a corner kick. Another player that's hoping to regain his form but from a few years ago is Kita Balde. He came off the bench and had three good chances. Andrea Concili stopped the first two but he had no chance on the third. Another substitute, Antonio Candreva, played a low corner kick and Balde took the shot first time into the back post. Balde nearly scored the equalizer in the 89th minute from a corner kick. Balde had a free header but couldn't keep it down, and then moments later he was shown a straight red card for a dangerous tackle straight through Traore from behind. The replay showed that it probably should have been a yellow card, but the red card stood up and that pretty much put the match to bed. 
So that's how our competition did. Milan and Inter both pulled further away from us with their wins. They're now 9 points and 8 points clear respectively. Roma and Sassuolo both won, so they are now 3rd and 4th place respectively, which means we are now in 5th. However, we do have a game in hand on all 4 of the teams above us. With the tie, we are now 1 point clear of 6th place Juventus. Atalanta remains 3 points back of us. Lazio are now 4 points back. And Verona are now 5 points back. So that's going to do it for this episode, which as of the day of recording is our final episode of 2020. I want to take a minute and thank each and every one of you for listening, whether you've been listening since day one or if you're new to the pod, it means a lot regardless. 2020 was a difficult year for everyone, and for me, this podcast was a great outlet. We recorded our first episode back in April. I really didn't know what I was doing back then. The audio quality was terrible, and it got a whopping 10 downloads, but the podcast has grown steadily since then, and I think I figured out the audio stuff well enough. We've recorded two episodes a week almost every week since we started. This episode was our 67th regular episode of the year. We also did eight bonus episodes, so we've recorded a total of 75 episodes in eight and a half months, which is not bad at all. I've also had the pleasure of meeting so many people, either being a guest on other podcasts or just interacting with people on social media, especially Napoli Twitter. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this content as much as I've enjoyed creating it. If you did... Please leave us a 5-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, and feel free to leave a comment as well. Besides my passion for Napoli and Serie A, that's what motivates me the most to keep on going. We'll be back with our first episode of 2021 in a couple of days. In that episode, I'll get you up to speed on the latest news and on the latest transfer rumors, and we'll preview our match on Sunday against Cagliari. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Happy New Year, and Forza Napoli sempre! just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time (gasps) no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky play for free at luckylandslots.com daily bonuses are waiting no purchase necessary void were prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details